0: Cliffcentral.com. Right. Do not. Are willing, uh, do, are,
1: are willing to like railroad the kids into behaving Pumi, the way
0: back. that they want them to. Uh, we're back. <laughs> Pumi's busy Hello? talking about railroading kids. Did you, did you just say out loud that you are willing to do all kinds of terrible things to the kids to get them to behave?
1: <laughs> no. I'm ah. just saying there, pe- oh. there are places out there who will do. All kinds of terrible things to get kids to behave in the way that they want them to. Is that Gabriel right. walking in and out of his like? What is he? Doing?
0: Gabriel, what is going on with you? He's he's. Sorry. Uh, yeah, what are Hello. you doing?
2: <laughs> I'm <laughs> trying to arrange my life. Okay. I'm in a I'm in an Airbnb, so it's not my usual studio setting. Ah, okay.
0: We won. Aha. Looks very disorganized there, but it's fine. We're happy to have you on. So here it is, uh, everybody. You've been waiting a week for the Burning Platform, and now it is time. Burning Platform, Pumi Mashiko and Kanthan Pillay are with us, as always, and this morning, Gabriel Krauser, of course, a writer and analyst at the Institute of Race Relations. He uh, does a lot of field work, qualitative and quantitative analysis, and he focuses on things like land reform. He's got lots to talk about. I um, often get your newsletters, and I often see your reports and I've thought for the longest time we've needed to get you on the show, Gabriel, because uh, people always want to hear what you have to say. And uh, we're going to talk about some of those things that you've been writing about lately. But uh, let's just let uh, you and Pumi and Canton all just vent about whatever it is this week has uh, grabbed your attention. And then we'll start with that and then we'll get on to the specifics of you know election research and, and some of the other stuff you've been involved in. Canton, pile I knew- now, Can I want to
3: pile into Gareth for starters, because Gareth <laughs> okay, was going wrong. on this morning about parents needing to be disciplined for not disciplining their kids. <clears throat> yes. Yes. Now, this is the same Gareth who says that parents are not allowed to blixom their kids. Am I correct? No, you're completely wrong. I say you should be able to blixem your kids. All right. Okay. Because I-, I think in the absence of parents being allowed to blixom their kids, mm-hmm. how the hell do they teach their kids that violence is not an acceptable option. So, So, Canton I... I, Violence
1: is not an option. Listen,
3: okay, one of the reasons why, and, you know, understand this, this is all about biology, okay? Mm -hmm. Particularly in terms of boys. When you are growing up, if you are an unruly boy Mm -hmm. and you actually do not have a well-intentioned male figure that's actually going to set you straight, you are going to cause cuck. Yes. And the issue that we have right now is that the overwhelming majority of males in our country are brought up by single mothers and mm-hmm. they do not have strong father figures to actually whip them into shape. And they can't get some.
2: Yeah. As a juju was brought and- up by a, a single mother,
3: um, <laughs> yeah.
2: I, 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 gotta say, a, a good bottom club from mom, uh, can also go a long way.
3: Yeah, well, you know, there used to be a time when, uh, and, and Pumi, you'd know about this, okay, Uh the mothers who have unerring accuracy with a shoe, that they'd be able to flip it across the room and it'd go, and it would clap the person. See, you know what I'm talking about. Were you on the receiving that. end of, uh, I, of this? I know okay. nothing
1: about that. Yeah. My mother never threw shoes.
3: Yeah, by the but way. Also, um,
1: but I, I just want to take issue with the issue with uh, single mothers. You see, the thing about a strong uh, male figure in your life for both girls and boys, by the way, does not necessarily have to be a father. It can be a grandfather. Quite right. An in uncle, my case, in, in my case, league.
3: it was a grandfather, but I did not say it was a father.
1: <laughs> no, no, no I'm just,
3: <clears throat> I, I did say. But you that did they, say
1: single mothers yes, implying that a husband. And I said
3: that they are brought up without having that strong male figure in their lives. Don't take my words out of context. When you say
1: single mother, you imply the lack of a husband.
3: Gareth, back to you. Tulima Madonsela should be locked up. Why? Because her son stole her BMW and crashed it. Right, so she should be locked up, yeah. Exactly, by by your reasoning. And yeah. uh, no, no, um... So,
0: so first of all, I just want to know why you think I would be against parents being able to clap their children from time. I've never, ever intimated even anything close to that.
3: I've like, I I was, misread you, Gareth. I was so, you're a child cups. abuser, are you? <laughs> no, I, I, I was given cups as a kid. And, and it's a fine line, right? I mean, like, out of out of,
0: four of us, the two of you who are parents, it's a difficult thing to work. Because you don't want to be an abusive monster dragon of a parent, but at the same time, you don't want your kid to be an absolute antisocial misfit because they've never been disciplined at home. So it's a very hard thing to do. No,
1: but I think like the state, right? The parent actually has a monopoly. And it is the threat of violence. It does not necessarily have to be the violence Pumi, that is a Pumi, deterrent. Pumi, you're, Pumi, you're like absolutely a state. right.
3: But, but a threat <laughs> that cannot be followed up on becomes utterly meaningless. Right. But, you and, know, and I'm, ha- is... I'm, I'm, I'm having a flashback to um, uh, to when my uh, eldest daughter and my nephew were kids. They, they're they the same age. And uh, my nephew had caused some cuck. And my brother then went up to him and said, okay, what the hell did you do that for? And my nephew brought about seven at the time, and he says, look, you might as well clap me and get it over with.
0: <laughs> but that's, uh, that's a kind of personal responsibility and accountability we don't yeah, see.
3: Exactly, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and of course, there were my brother and I tried to be the stern father figures, you know, just kind of <laughs> <but> <laughs> wanting to crack up at the All same right. time. I do want Uh, you all
1: to know that Canton's other daughter is sitting across from me. And and she's unimpressed with her own father and all his talk (laughs) of violence.
0: All right. So what do you want to get off your chest, Pums? And then, uh, Gabriel, it's your turn. tweezies for
1: me? No, I I, I have got... The, the the That part of what I needed, as I say, even you will see, even in this burning platform, all the things that are going on today. So today we're also holding our breaths as we wait for one o'clock when Bongani Baloi, former former DA mayor of Midval, and former action is a um, regional, is this a re- provincial head, uh, Gauteng, is hosting a press conference to tell us now that he has left the the um action essay, what he will be doing next. So we're waiting with bated breath. You will see, even in this show, kuningi guys. Kuningi happening nine o'clock this morning. There mm-hmm. is, I've already alluded to this. There is also a press conference. I don't know when we're supposed to work. South Africa is a, a, like every single moment of every single day. There is so much for us to pay attention to. That I don't know when we are supposed to work, which is why our economy is in the doldrums. Because we're, also... we're the
0: laptop class. We don't work. Oh, what's the what's the nine what's the nine o'clock press conference? If uh, Baloy is at one, G4s,
1: the oh, private right. pri- the the operators of the private prison in Mangaum mm-hmm. and uh, Correctional Services will be giving us. Um, They'll they'll be telling us what's going on. What's going on with Tabo Did he or did he not die in the fire? Is he the man that is on the run or is this just a doppelganger? We don't know. Well,
0: well, uh, Slippery Pickle, Carl DeSantis says, I come here to hear about how shit the ANC is. Move on. So maybe Gabriel, you
1: can-
3: <laughs> if, if, if he needs a memo to, to know how shit the ANC is, dude, you know, as Helen Ziller said to me last week, have you been under a rock?
2: I wow, like it, but it is, it's nice to update uh, fresh ways in, in which to notice the, the, the decline of the country as a result of ANC policy. And I, and I do want to get into that, but I think, Promi, um, uh, since you mentioned exit SA, I, I think I must say, um, Herman Mashaba was on the show with you guys a couple of weeks ago. He said the Institute of Race Relations doesn't like him, try to organize the ANC and the DA to get together without him. We've dealt with yeah. this all before in writing. It's not true. Um, I think he's an, a very promising leader. Uh, I wish that he would focus his attention on things like um, the, the, the misgovernance of the ANC,
0: um, or his own party, or his own party with, um, you know, people like, uh, Kaza who left in a temper, um, Baloy, who's leaving now in a temper. You know, let's, let's find out why, uh, everybody who deals with Erman Mashaba seems to, um, get in the way of his ego or they seem to argue with each other on this. But that's more important than whether or not the IRR is trying to undermine him, um, insidiously from the sidelines, right?
2: I, I think that's fair, and I, and I think it's also definitely important to note that um, at the time when um, uh, Musi Maimani and Herman Mashaba uh, were inside the DA, um, the then CEO of the IRR actually went out of his way to try and argue for um, Musi to to stay as leader, and I, and, that, and that was a bit hush hush at the time, but it was leaked, and so I'm I'm, I'm happy to report it. Um, I actually clashed with. Uh, my boss at the time, because I was like, "No, dude, Musi didn't have a great election cycle. Maybe they should have a new leader." He was like, "No, no, no keep Musi and keep Mishaba. Anyway, so that's just that's just housekeeping. I think um, on the on the prison break story, it, it I mean, I think it's just I think it's a little bit worrying that the private sector is. I had a, an interview on ENCA on Monday about the Tabu Besta scandal and thought it was kind of. Um, not surprising but tricky to my mind that the that the idea is for g4s to lose its contract i mean there clearly have been problems in prison contracting busasa was first implicated in scandalous behavior in 2009 tomoyani uh was the head of uh the correctional services center at the time and uh, was sort of forced into early retirement because he defended them Mm. Then he went to take over SARS. uh, And the cost.
1: Defended (laughs) them and the cost, which is almost 800 million is what they get paid almost yearly. 800 million.
3: Can we talk about shipping these guys to Rwanda, please? Yeah, like the British. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I once saw, you you know,
2: Garrett's shirt is the same color as a Rwandese prison uniform. Um, really,
0: is a pink? Right
2: pink. pink. I once saw a troop of R- Rwandese prisoners working the, <laughs> toiling in the streets, cleaning things up. They're very well disciplined, and none of them ever run away because it'd be the last thing you ever do.
0: Yeah, they'll shoot I, them.
2: I, yeah, I, I think the Zuma, you know, just the the, the Zuma case um, of of that prison break, um, that's just you know to flag something mm. that we worked on. We we went to the Supreme Court of Appeals last year. Um, to to try and argue for his return. And we're kind of sitting in the boat of of trying to uh, climb into the constitutional court action as well. Um, because I think um, between the DA and AFRI Forum and others who have tried to argue the case, there there is potentially a, a missing link that um, it would be unfortunate if Zuma manages to get through. And, of course, with Dalian Porfu as his advocate, um, Porfu is quite good at, at sort of probing every particular option, um, sort of shooting uh, with a machine gun through through every spray, argument.
0: Spray and pray,
2: spray and pray. So uh, we, we'd like to um, block uh, block one of those off. To, to, because Zuma, you know, as, as much as Tabo Besta and whatever, I mean, it's a fascinating story. Um, but the Zuma prison break is by far the most important one in the new South Africa. And it really is a prison break, um, So may he return? Um,
1: Why? Why do you think that is a far more important one? I think they're different cases, but I think they're both equally weighty, you know, because the one talks about a system which is, and we love the private sector in this country. Apparently they're better managed, better run than the government. But here we have a private prison that's managed to lose a prisoner, have a fire and a dead body, and not no. account for, is it a new body that came into the prison? Is it an another prisoner that was killed? And, you know, there are two different cases, but both of them talk about very different issues within this correctional services system. And I, I don't know so- if the one is more important than the other.
2: I think the case for why it's more important is that um, is that Zuma was more important and Zuma remains more important because he was president of the country. And because the protests against his release are what became the July riots. And I'm not at all suggesting that most looters or most rioters were particular Zuma fans. Um, but that was the light, the spark that lit the match. The, the top of best of things not going to get there. And I totally agree. Like there is a lack of transparency, transparency, um, it's unclear it seems most likely that g4s is culpable or that its staff management systems are somehow partly to blame but i think that one of the things about um uh, doing this kind of work is is things can sometimes go wrong and there might be um isolatable blame within the company um which which could be itself addressed by the criminal justice system yeah. and can the I company just in, uh, doing its job.
0: like let's let's look at the disease and not the symptoms here because The reason that we have to have private prisons is because the government can't run the state prisons properly. When the private prisons are run badly, they should be come down upon with as much fury and vengeance as the the state prisons would be. But we must not hold them to a separate standard because we seem to do this in the country. We always say, well, you know, we expect more of private enterprises because they're more responsible and they're more efficient. Um, but we don't expect that same high standard. It's the same as opposition politics. We've talked about this before. There's a standard because we're so used to the incompetence of the the government in every sphere and at everything that they do that we, we then have a double standard and we seem to think, well, everybody else must be held to a higher one. Our, our fury and our ire should still be directed primarily at the people who didn't do their jobs so that the government had to pay 800 million rand to some security company and believe me i'm no fan of these security companies i think they are all way too dangerous and overmighty, and i think that they they represent an existential threat to the safety of most south africans even if they purport to be looking after us i think these are well-armed militias um, private who, armies private armies who if if their bosses were less uh, commercially oriented and more oriented towards political subterfuge and or kind of putting their hands on the scales, we may end up with a lot more problems. So I don't like the idea of these big, powerful security companies, but I also don't think that they came about out of nowhere. They came about because the police and the prisons and every other government department are up to shit. Dude, and look at the army. Any of you disagree? Any of you disagree on that?
2: Can I underline just the, the, the army point? Um, I, I, I kind of um, think that the, the, the 20th of March EFF shutdown, um, that itself was shut down, um, would have, you know, th- there are ways that you could imagine that having gone a bit differently. And, and one of them is to recall that in February, the South African army nearly was not paid because the servers on which all of their um, bank details are kept in a bunker underground, have air conditioning units and, and pipes to keep the service from melting. And that hadn't been serviced. And so the IT guy said, What you need to do is turn off these servers for three days so that we can get in there and replace the cooling system. But what that's going to mean is that the 15th of March pay date is going to be missed and the soldiers are going to miss their pay by two days. <sighs> now, soldiers should definitely be able to have to wait two days extra for their pay uh, and i'm not saying that's nice uh but the government was so afraid of its soldiers going on strike because of uh the payday delay that they took the risk of going through with the service melting but being able to uh salvage the situation anyway now it turned you know the it
0: and by the way all of this is a problem because they can't provide electricity
2: Yes, exactly. It's a it's a downstream of low shedding issue.
0: So again, address address the disease, not the symptoms. But yes,
2: but if you imagine um, that you know we had like a thirty percent chance that those servers would have melted, and then the the shutdown would have included striking armed forces. Sure. Then the only thing to help you maybe would have been the private security companies. And that's not a position anyone wants to be in where your own army is, is not to be relied on to protect you. But you have to use an effective private militia. Um, and yes, uh, all of this requires uh, good governance to be addressed. Here's a fun fact about South African good governance that we figured out in our upcoming tax report. Um, that I've... South Africa, if you look at the World Bank data, We have the, I think it's the eighth sharpest rise in the last 20 years in government spending as a proportion of GDP. So Mm. in 1999, it was a little under 20%. And now it's a little under 40%. And uh, it's it's basically doubled. It's just under doubled. And... um, At the same time as hugely expanding the proportion of wealth that's going through government hands to spend, um, we've also seen the 13th sharpest decline in efficiency of government spending, according to the World Bank. So World Bank tracks like 200 countries and territories, and you put them all in a list, 225 or something. Um, We were ranked in the top 20% in the world in 1999. 2000. And we are now in the middle. So it can get much worse. Government spending in Venezuela, uh, Cuba, North Korea, Zimbabwe is much worse than here. Um, But we have gone from the 80th percentile to the 50th percentile. And that rate of decline is the 13th fastest in the world. But if you combine the two, most really, really, really bad countries or bad governments have lost the ability to keep taxing people and spending as much of, of the economy. South Africa has managed to um, increase its share of government spending while decreasing its ability to, to get good work done with that money at the fastest rate of any country in the world over the last 20 years. And I think that's a pretty stunning indictment of the ANC. Um, uh, It's it's, it's one thing if it was just doing badly, but it's another thing to
0: hoover up more and more and more to do badly with. So, uh, we've got a new mayor of Twyne. I just want to bring it back to politics because people love a little bit of that and they love the personality politics. There's a new guy in charge in Twyne. He's uh, he went up there he said uh, exactly the right thing, you know, I'm not here to represent my party, I'm here to represent a coalition. Do we do we hold our breath for this coalition to last? I mean, am I going to be sitting here in another 2 months when they've thrown this guy out
3: uh, and we have more chaos in the Twyne metro council? Look, probably, Gareth, probably, yep. but I, I think, you know, we should take these breaks when we can get them. <coughs> if two we months. get two months of good governance out of this, you know, I'm, that that's a win as far as I'm concerned. It's better uh, than two months of non-governance. Right, okay. I think so it, just...
2: it could last longer. The the, the, the Chwani <coughs> um, numbers um, are such that twenty versus um, Bononi Kurileni um, versus Joburg. Uh, mm-hmm. Joburg and Kurileni were always unstable coalitions where the EFF was required more or less to maintain the stability of the coalition. Whereas in right. Chwani, the the Rainbow Coalition, the DA Coalition, the Wild Dogs, often called by the IRA, that coalition could keep going without that. And the secret ballot um, removal of the mayor and speaker almost certainly included some DA or some action essay or, or whatever uh, defectors. Um, mm-hmm. That issue does seem to have been dealt with, assuming that it remains dealt with. Uh, Silias Brink uh, can stay mayor of um, the, the capital city. I think that Silias is, is an impressive um, figure. I've done some interviews with him. I think he's, he's got a sharp mind. I think he knows not to overpromise. But I think that he's got a very heavy task because that city has been effectively run by the DA for a long time with Randall Williams, who I also rate highly, um, coming up with a with a bit of a bung uh, auditor's report and a lot of residents saying they're not seeing real improved conditions. The, the, the line to remember, perhaps, is that the road to the union buildings runs through Pretoria. It runs through Suwana. If the DA led coalition wants to do well in 2024. It needs to convince right. ordinary voters outside of the Western Cape that it can deliver there what it's been delivering inside the Western Cape for the last decade plus. The best and only way to do that at scale is in Twanay. Um mm-hmm. And so I think the next 12 months, if they can keep the the, the leadership, you know, if they can avoid uh, um, defectors' uh, votes of no confidence, that's not enough. They really need to push the needle. Ne- it, it is the single most important project for opposition politics in the country, I think.
0: Cool. So not just a mayoral uh, election. All right. Um, it's it's got to be your dog in the background there, uh, Gabriel.
1: <laughs> I was about to ask, Gareth, if that's your old old dog at the neighbor. No,
0: it's not. It's, Definitely.
1: not. It's, it's Gabriel's dog. No, but you know, we, we were, and Canton, I would love for you to weigh in on this. We were talking about this on the way into the studio this morning about about coalition governments and why suddenly it seems like we're unable to, to work within a coalition government Especially when our country started its free life in a coalition. Do you all remember the government of national unity? What, what has changed? What has changed that allowed such vastly different political parties back then to be able to work together towards what, you know, what we all see as a common good?
3: Well, the government of national unity was now. not a coalition. So that's an important difference that we need to understand. The GNU was actually mandated by the uh, Constitution at the time. That was part of the agreements that came out of Kodesa. And so that's the reason why you ended up with Tabo Beki as first deputy president and uh, F.W. de Klerk as second deputy president, because the proportion of uh, how the ministers and so forth would be allocated was actually agreed upon. Um, in CODESA. Yeah. In, in, in
1: but uh, hold on, mm, but mm. Uh, you know, you say it was not a coalition, but theoretically, right, theoretically, as you say, the proportion uh, of, of ministers, of portfolio holders was agreed upon. And this is theoretically what a coalition, like a DA-led coalition, an ANC-EFF coalition, any of those things are supposed to be, they're supposed to agree upon who gets what, Portfolio, who gets to do what and agree about how it is that they're going to run a particular municipality and how they're going to vote. Well, what I'm I'm trying to say is,
3: what I'm trying to say is that the difference, if you take, for example, what went down in Chuanet, the ability of members of one party to defect to another party and then end up with a situation where, um, A person who formally did not have any position suddenly becomes appointed as mayor would not have been possible under, uh, the government of national unity because the proportions and in terms of how it was allocated was already determined ahead of time. So it was, that was a legislative process as opposed to an agreement between the political parties. But the crucial thing from my side is, is the thing that I said, um, uh, to, uh, I said this to the DA in late last year, but the only way to prevent a scenario is you need to have financial consequences for people who break coalition yes. agreements. And the yes. financial consequences have to be at a personal level, not at the level of a party. So and therefore, you have, yeah, you, you will yeah, know yeah.
0: when, when people do that, they're doing it on principle and they're willing to risk. The fact that they're going to lose actual money out of their own account. In other words, if it's free and if it's cheap, like virtue signaling on the internet, then everyone's going to do it at the drop of a hat. There's no reason, there's no incentive not to just act out like a skotane. Um, we, want these pe- we want these people
3: to feel the consequences of their actions. I completely Absolutely. Feel- So you, you draw so- up the agreements yeah, And uh, when you draw up the agreements, you put in those financial consequences into the agreements. Now, the, the reason why Joburg's coalition fell apart and uh, Schwan's uh, uh, former coalition fell apart is because you had individuals who actually broke the terms of the coalition agreements, even though they had all signed these coalition agreements, or at least their parties did.
2: So the thing is, I, I think that uh, to go back a step, this, this is like a, a political science question that, that a lot of countries grapple with. Um, and yes, the the interim transition constitution uh, set up the government of national unity with, with the kind of legal binding uh, agreement between parties before the case that made dissolution uh, trickier. Um, there is a strong reason why in a lot of countries, including South Africa, it's, it's, it's difficult, if not impossible to have legally binding contracts between political parties going into coalitions. Uh, Why, why it might be difficult to set up these kinds of, you know, we we can have a contract to build a house. And if you break the contract, you have a, you face a financial consequence and that's how business works. It's, it might not be constitutional to do that. It might be, I don't know, but here's the argument for why it won't be. Um, The abstract argument is that we live in a representative democracy uh, not a contract of democracy. So when you elect particularly a ward councillor, but also someone who gets picked up off a party list, your idea is you're saying this person is going to be a custodian of my best interests for the next five years. And so they should be allowed to to, to play their role according to their conscience. And Gareth is right in saying that uh, you know, it would be especially nice if people were willing to uh, test their conscience against some material cost uh, but the mm-hmm. law doesn't always make room for that. The, the law can sometimes say, look, if you're expecting this person to, to, to pay their house mortgage, you know, to give up their house in order to, to vote their conscience, then you're not really allowing them to vote their conscience. The flip side of this is in a representative de- democracy, you should know exactly who has cast which ballot. So that you can keep track of whether the elected official is representing your best interest. But we have secret ballots doing these things, which uh, is, without which the 20 situation I don't think could have happened. And part of the reason that we have secret ballots is the DA's fault. The DA's arguments for secret ballots during the Zuma era in order to try and encourage ANC members to feel <laughs> courageous enough to vote their conscience to get rid of uh, Gethle And we said was, at
3: the time it would come back to bite them. Yes, we did, dude.
2: And it is. And, it's a, it's a, and, and I see the thing happening again with the DA now trying to push for a constitutional reform so that you can only have one motion of no confidence every year. Well, what happens if we do get a government of... Um, Uh, you know uh, a good government uh rainbow coalition government in 2024 there's a sneaky vote of no confidence on some kind of secret ballot that's smuggled through um uh, a naughty speaker motion and then you are stuck with an eff uh uh, uh, government at national level for a year because you've managed to pull off this thing ultimately The,
0: the the, the law of unintended consequences (laughs) <laughs> exactly.
2: And the only real way out, I think t- to address your your
0: question directly, Pumi, the,
2: the the thing that we really need, the biggest difference between now and, and 25 years ago is now we are a post-adolescent democracy and we need to act like a post-adolescent mm-hmm. democracy. And that does mean uh, blaming ourselves as citizens. If things aren't going right, we need to, blaming the rules, we need to start looking at ourselves and say, are we voting right? As citizens, face-to-face, friend-to-friend, are we, are we putting the effort to vote? We're running a, a voting registration campaign. Now's the time to do it. Um, and are you going out and, and, and making a meaningful vote that, 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 that gives a good chance for change? I think that without that, the constitution, the rules, the, the contracts, nothing's going to save us from ourselves if we don't get our act together in this very basic
3: democratic way.
1: <laughs> but it also sounds, just listening to all of y'all, it also sounds like we, we have bad politicians who don't know how to be politicians who don't know how to lobby for their who don't know how to lobby for their ideas who don't know how to convince people across the floor why their idea is good
3: so which country has good politicians um, yeah
1: <laughs> I think, look i think it, it you know i think the the politics the dirtiness of politics and the slug fight because that's what it is like politics basically is a slug fight at any time at any turn it's a slug fight for your ideas it's a slug fight for your policies it's a, and and all along the way you have got to be willing to fight for it hard enough which means getting the right people to believe in your policies to vote for you so getting the people to the voting station to vote for you
0: well Get, be,
1: getting And then, when you are be, a representative...
0: Virus in the comments, Pumi, has a different take. He says we should just go and dump our spoiled fridge contents in the driveway of Megawatt Park. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's activism of a kind. <laughs>
1: but no, 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 but seriously. And then when you have been elected and when you are a representative... In the corridors, you know, doing the work of in the corridors, talking, whipping up the votes, counting the various people and getting them to your side of the table. Look, look at what happened to Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. Right. That, that is a slug fight. And that's what like serious politicking is about as well. It's about more than just saying, oh, you know, just shouting from the benches. And that's what we don't have here. We don't have that. We we do have a lot of people on Twitter. We do have a lot of politicians on Twitter blaring these views of theirs out there. But in the can moment, I, in the chair, in the benches, they're not can, doing the work. In the I want to give an example, a cor-
2: a controversial example, perhaps of 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 what I think is, is exactly what you're talking about. Um, so I, I I'm in Cape Town now. Part of the reason that I came down was to go and dig around in the in the Cape Town High Court archives <laughs> to to look back on this case between Busisiwe Mkwebane and Sororama Posa and company. Right. So everyone like Mkwebane, public protector, she's like on TV every day with her silly hearing, um, with her Stalingrad tactics. Uh, she should have never been appointed public protector. Uh, from the moment in 2018 where she tried to order the constitutional courts to basically allow modern monetary theory to to, to take over the country with hyperinflation. She definitely should have been removed. It's overdue. <laughs> but there is this weird thing, right, where, where Ramaphosa finally suspended her um, two, two and a half years after he got the power to do so, exactly two days after she asked him 31 questions about Palapala. Um, it was very Mm. strange timing. What made the timing even weirder was that he suspended her the day before the Western Cape high court judgment was to come out about whether he had the power to suspend her or whether he had a conflict of interest. So it's like, why not just Mm -hmm. wait an extra day? What was the problem? And Mm -hmm. I went into the, the, the archives to try and figure out what the arguments were that were made in that case. And the case that then came afterwards where the Western Cape high court ruled later in September, that Ramaposa clearly acted in haste. He clearly um, uh, exhibited a strange behavior in doing so. He well, you, know exactly
0: a- on, we don't, you don't have to read tea leaves to know. He was acting in his own interests, in his own best interests, and with no prior consideration of his constitutional responsibilities, duties, or even powers. This is an obvious move by a man who's completely self-motivated.
2: It's stunningly obvious. He had two and a half years. He says, you know, I couldn't wait a day longer. I was in such a terrible haste. He was in a terrible haste for two and a half years. He could have suspended her. Anyway, so by the way, he himself said, he swore under oath repeatedly that if there was a case between him and Cuebane that was related to conflict of interest, he couldn't suspend her while that litigation was ongoing. In the, in the the In the appeal to the constitutional court, he tries to explain, okay, if you yourself have said, you can't suspend because there's a conflict of interest if you're busy cashing with each other in court. Why did you then suspend it while you were busy cashing out each other in court? He submits there was no pending litigation. I mean, it's a brazen lie. It's it's like obvious black and white gaslighting. It's absurd. Here's 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 where it gets very irritating to me. The reason Ramaphosa, just an aside, we have uh, submitted a PIA application last year to the new acting public protector to release those 31 questions, his answers to those questions, because we would like to compare his answers to that that he gave in July to the answers that he gave to the Uh, um, impeachment commission in october to see if he gave the same answers if he gave different answers he's got to go if he gave the same answers well that might help his case Uh, either way it's important for south africans to know the acting public protector hasn't released that information she said back last year in winter that she couldn't give out his answers because it might um, uh, damage the investigation you know if you give out the witnesses answers then other witnesses are going to hear and they can Use that to make their stories come right. But he's now—it's right. now like eight months later—that that reason doesn't make any sense. He's given his official version elsewhere. The only thing left. So that makes me worry about the acting public protector's credibility. But the biggest worry to me, in a way, is the DA. The reason that Ramaphosa, to my mind, has not gotten in more trouble about this particular side of the Palapala scandal—the um, side of 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 removing. Buzi'sywe Kobane, two and a half years too late, but one day too early for it to make any sense other than as self interested uh, uh, nonsense. The, the, is is that the DA stood up to defend him in court? They said that what he did made perfect sense. This guy was acting in the in the in the in the, in the most reasonable possible fashion. You can't second guess him. And 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 I, you know I've got some sympathy for them. They have spent you know Glenis Breitenbach, um, uh, MP Mazzotti, Uh, they have really gone the distance in going after Busisiwe Mkobane. And partly you can understand how they didn't want to turn around and say, okay, we'll put her back in her job. But also, you know, they themselves have submitted, and every lawyer that I've asked about this has said, there's clear precedent where you can say she was, the suspension exhibited a conflict of interest, but the remedy should not be to put her back in her job because clearly she's got to go. The remedy yeah. should be to uphold the suspension for another 30 days while someone else is put in place to suspend it.
0: I'm led to believe by all the political punditry that I see around me and by people who call themselves Professor X or Y on TV that the IRR is always on the side of the DA. So how could you possibly be saying these things? No, man. <laughs> Dude, I think the DA has, has screwed the pooch. I think that the DA could have put
2: Ramaphosa in a position to to be found guilty of constitutional misconduct by the constitutional court, which would have been a far more damning finding than the panel report, which would have forced parliament once again to face the issue and would have exposed the ANC as so brazenly unconstitutional that when the highest court in the land says this guy acted unconstitutionally, they're still going to vote not to impeach him. That might have triggered an early election. That might have given the DA the best possible momentum that they could have wished for to go into the 2024 election ready to win, ready to govern, ready to lead a coalition that could actually replace the ANC. Instead, they stood up for Ramaphosa. They banded the Lager together. There's a lot of um and ahm about whether they want to get in bed with the ANC and govern together with the ANC mm-hmm. um, rather than with uh, other partners going into 2024. I don't think the ANC particularly wants to get in bed with the DA. I think that, that, that you know, uh, uh, France Crenier, my old boss, he, he, he made the call over the weekend that there's going to be stage zero, one, or two load shedding going into 2024. And I think that's a very interesting call. I know that he's basing it on some investigations he's done of the coal fleet Mm. and and parts of it that he thinks um, are much more ready to go uh, than than we sometimes are given to believe. And if the ANC does that, on the polling that his foundation does, that the IRR does, I think the ANC is back in the position where it can get a 50% majority all on its lonesome. And then we're back in the world where maybe with the EFF and a couple of rats and mice parties, they can get a two-thirds majority. We can think about amending the Constitution all over again, just as Ramaphosa has been talking about the last two weeks. And, hey, guys, the most exciting thing about South African politics is it's a soap opera that repeats itself again and again and again. Malena comes back from the dead every season, and so does the <laughs> ANC. And part of the thing is that all the right, DA has dead. not gone no. for the jugular. And Gabriel, you've
3: actually cut to the chase now around the argument that I was having with Helen Zilla last week, because the only way you prevent that scenario is by getting people who couldn't care to vote to actually go to the polls and vote. And the only way in which you're going to have a scenario where the ANC is getting more than 50 percent is if those 11 million people who didn't vote actually don't vote. And it's a very real scenario that you're talking about. And if people would actually shift their focus onto those undecided voters, then we've actually got a real chance of salvaging something. But yes, the scenario that you're painting is bleak, but (laughs) I I think it's very likely. But here's something else I'd like to just toss out, guys, for something for you to consider. All right. And and maybe it's just a different way of looking at things. Consider that the ANC itself right now is, in fact, a coalition Mm -hmm. within itself. OK, yeah. it, it, it's a coalition of people that actually um, they, they, they serve different masters. They have different agendas, but they have all come together to rule this country simply because of the fact that they want to retain power, which is why they are so dysfunctional, because they are all pulling in different directions. And Ramaphosa is very happy to just sit back there and allow the dysfunction to actually continue. And is there a way to actually force that coalition to pull itself apart? I think that that's, that's a, the question that we should be looking at.
2: That's the best hope. In the absence of good uh, opposition politics, South Africa's last best hope for a good result in 2024, perhaps, is um, the, the, the last standing honourable members of the ANC, finally recognizing that we have the world's highest recorded unemployment rate. We have the world's worst public education system on a bang-for-bang basis. We have the fastest-growing government when ratioed with its decline in effectiveness. We have the world's highest minimum wage to median ratio, meaning we've got, uh, you know, just the the craziest um, anti-poor labor policies. We're doubling down on BEE through the Employment Act Amendment Bill, DISCAM-style moratoria, the government drive for expropriation without compensation. There's a lot of stuff that good honorable um, uh, ANC members who who were in the struggle and who who just wanted a, a center left kind of uh, uh, amicable kind of form of good governance, they have a lot to feel ashamed about. And if they jump the, the wagon, as we saw, uh, some people have already done. But if the big leaders, someone between Inokonangwana, Titambuweni, Kaklema Motlante, Tabo Mbeki, if any of those guys can jump ship Trevor Manuel and and try and take, um, a bit of a crew with them, they might be able to say we 're the true ANC that uh, coalition that 's left is a bunch of venal um, or incompetent uh, self service and we would like to lead the da action sa phrase front plus ACDP and IFP into the the new uh, third age of South African uh, uh, politics. that would be very exciting, but i don't think that there's enough pressure um, for them to want to do that it's a it 's a risky move um, Terry Lecourte has, uh, you know, I voted for Cope in 2019. Um, I, um, I, I've got a lot of time for that guy, but Cope has done very, very bad. Well, Gabriel, you did Polish. vote for me.
3: <laughs>
2: no, I did. it. <laughs> I, you know, but he, I, I he think... has shown that it can it can work out badly. So go ahead.
1: So I just want to jump in because earlier I spoke about being at this H- HSRC uh research presentation yesterday that they have been doing for the past twenty years, I think. Um, in conjunction with the IEC. So that is independent of any of the political parties. There were lots of part- political party liaison people there in the presentation yesterday. And it it was interesting for me to see. So they all the stuff that we already know, right? The declining number of people showing up to vote to Mm Canton's point about concentrating on the people who aren't showing up to vote is what opposition parties should be doing. Uh, Secondly, just talking about the trust that, you know, one of the questions that they did ask is they asked uh, their respondents, their sample bearing in mind that this is probably since about 1999 that they've been doing this this research. So asking them about trust, how many people of their respondents trust the IEC and its independence? Very many people trust that the IEC is doing its job and doing its job well. I make this point because some of the conversation that has been going on in the past probably 18 months as people and their polling is talking about a coalition government possibly being what happens after 2024, is suddenly the political parties are all trying to tell us that the IEC may not be trustworthy, that they're going to allow the ANC to steal uh, the election. And that is a very dangerous place to be. I think where political parties begin to create doubt in the mind of the electorate about the independence of the IEC is really going to create a problem. The same kind of fuck up that secret polling has Mm. become for the DA, right? Secret uh, ballots in parliament have become for the DA. But anyway, the second thing though, which I found very interesting yesterday is that the electorate trust the opposition parties less than (laughs) they trust the ANC. So they're not because of the behavior Mm. of politicians, Because of the behavior of politicians, the trust factor in the ANC is sitting at about 26%. And the trust factor in opposition politicians is at 24 It's a slim margin, but it's a margin to consider that because of the behavior of our politicians.
0: Isn't that damning? I mean, 26 and 28%, I mean, these are just, or 24 and 26%. These are not numbers. I mean, if you know, when you talk about confidence and trust, that means that only two out of every 10 people trust any of these motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> <It's simple>.
2: you've <laughs> got to be a little bit careful, right? Because, but this because is my Parties okay. is okay. lumping,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. You're putting, uh, you know, Herman Mashaba, Julius Malema, you're putting John Steenhazen, you're putting Mangosutu uh, Buthelezi. But obviously, it's a, it's a lot more complicated. But Still, politicians in general cannot get more than two out of ten South Africans to actually take notice of them and trust them. Unbelievable. I'd what be interested to know what the figure
3: is for journalists, though.
1: <laughs> oh, they do actually have that. Unfortunately, I left the report in my car. But they do also have that. You know, they do also sure have trust in media. Right so trust yeah. in the media. Right and, and, and there was quite a, a strong sentiment that mainstream media favors uh, the ruling party. Over everybody mm-hmm. else, you know. So, and sure. we know that now. We've been watching them. We've been watching them with Cyril Ramaphosa and the kid gloves with which they treat him. So, I mean, I think that it's it's not unwarranted that people feel that media is unfairly right. biased.
3: So, guys, um, I, I just Gareth. Uh, one of the things that Gabriel had put on his list was the talk that he gave to the EU delegates in in Feb. The digital mm. disinformation conference. And mm. I'd really like to hear a bit more about that. I don't know about you guys. Definitely go ahead, Gabriel.
2: Sure. Thanks. Um, so the yeah, I mean, uh, thanks to the, the Spanish and German embassies for hosting this talk and the EU delegates and whatnot. And I mean, as an aside, it was uh, interesting to see uh, Max Dupria, Peter Bruce um, representing and others representing the mainstream media. Um, I. It, it was it was an interesting day. the 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 talk that I gave was basically about um, what I brand um, audaciously as the science of the twenty first century. Um, it's you can call it Um and uh, <laughs> uh, basically the idea is I got this from. Uh, a, Princeton professor that I studied under Philip Pettit, um, who wrote a book called *The Economy of Esteem*. He observed that for the last two and a half thousand years, across three continents where people have been writing things down about observing, uh, you know, philosophy, human human nature, they've tended mm-hmm. to put uh, th- bucket three different kinds of social desires: the desire for power, the desire for property, and the desire for prestige or the positive regard of others. And the first two have become institutionally, quantitatively well-studied topics of uh, human uh, interaction. Politics, political science is the study of the pursuit of power, the patterns of behavior that emerge from that. And economics is the study of the patterns of behavior that come from pursuing property. But the third kind, what we do when we pursue likes, uh, that is not Um, well-studied. Sociology, anthropology, there are interesting stories that we tell, but there's nothing like a quantifiable analysis. Part of the reason for that is we didn't have a way to quantify likes until Facebook or the internet, Twitter, Instagram, etc. Oh. Now we can quantify it. Here's why we're not quantifying it. Here's why there is not a growing industry of academics, think tanks and so on um, really studying uh, how we get along, how trends work in a, in a robust academic way. It's because the social media companies are not releasing the data Now, the story at Facebook is that they used to make it pretty free to access their API, which is the kind of data you need to do this analysis. Then Donald Trump won the election. And the meme was one of the memes was and there's certainly some truth to it, that Cambridge Analytica had been able to use this information metadata about how people interact in order to create more targeted uh, political campaigns that uh, gave him a bit of an edge. What was often forgotten and what was clear to me as a silly thing to forget was that Obama, when I was in America in his campaign against Mitt Romney, was doing exactly the same thing. And at that time, The New York Times thought this was a great development in democracy. Uh, When Trump did it, they thought this is the end of democracy. And so they supported Facebook in taking their API down. Twitter, in February, while we were doing the conference, took its API and put it behind a paywall, too. So I was there with like... A dozen uh, leaders of tech companies from Spain, America, Canada, South Africa, and all of these guys are kind of uh, sitting in the position where they've been analyzing trends. They've been analyzing um, the the, the illicit trade in human beings, the illicit uh, ferrying of people across borders, they've been, uh, you know, human trafficking, they, they've they been analyzing how, how toxic uh, anti-immigrant memes spread in parts of Africa and they've been able to do this using Twitter API. And they can't do this anymore or their business model needs to change a bit because of the new paywall and if it gets worse, the Uh, Paywall is going to be replaced by a hard barrier by, you know, apply to the CIA, apply to the FBI, apply to some government agency to see the data, you can't just get it for free, or you can't get it openly and transparently. So my argument is that we need to live in a world where more information is what we use. To combat disinformation. We can't rely on government censors to do it for us. That is a nightmare. Think about the people who ran the COVID lockdown now, you know, continuing to decide what gets to be heard or not. It's a very terrible idea. We need more information. And in particular, the information we need is the aggregate patterns of behavior. We need the kinds of data that you can create GDP analysis, levels of analysis for the for the esteem economy. And I think that uh, the, the the technical legal solution is that the trade secrets. Um, framework within which uh, social media companies, maybe some insurance companies, and, and things like ChatGPT, AI companies, trade secrets needs to be replaced with patent law and trademark law so that they can put out their algorithms and they can put out their metadata and think tanks, academics, uh, journalists, Uh, interested dudes who do podcasts can all go and look at that stuff, see the patterns, talk about it, help us all kind of improve our bullshit detectors by seeing, Oh, this thing is trending. And you can see a little bit like why it's working. If you see why it's working in a fashion sense, that's going to help insulate you from the, the merely fashionable quality and, and and disambiguate that from the truthful quality Um, on your own terms. And you're using your own noggin with, with more information to do so. So it needs to be protected. They, they need to be able to give out their trade secrets um, without um, losing to the competition. Other people can't just photocopy it. That's what patent law is for. And, 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 the, and the metaphor that I use, I'll close with this, is that, you know, two and a half thousand years ago, Socrates said that uh, there's this new technology on the wing. It's called writing things down and society (laughs) is never going to survive this. He was like, yes, the youth are going to get so rude and people aren't going to put in the effort to engage nicely because they're just going to write things down and they're going to forget it in their heads. He said civilization can't survive writing. And the same thing was said about the printing press, about the radio, about the television, and then about the internet. The solution in each and every occasion hasn't been censorship. It's been more transparent use of the new technology. And the the use (laughs) here has to be um, transparent (laughs) metadata.
0: I I I can't think think of a better uh, way to end than on Socrates. (laughs) I mean that's that's pretty much
1: circle. I I, do want to say though that one of the things you talk about our bullshit detectors having more access. It's gonna allow us to refine our bullshit detectors. Having just spent the past week on mid-journey, I don't know (laughs) how we're going to especially here in South Africa, which is why I started out talking about Guningi, right? Is I don't know how we're going to that quickly get wrap our heads around all that we have to wrap our heads around in order to have our bullshit detectors kind of refined towards being able to tell what's real and what's not, especially when we are currently sitting in a situation where we don't even know if prisoners escaped or not. I'm just saying. It's an
2: arms race. The bullshit, the bullshit is uh, definitely winning the arms race against the bullshit detectors. There's there's so much of it around, mm. and it's not going to be easy to reverse that. But but you have to start. You know, we, we all yeah, have you to keep doing it every day.
0: I mean, again, I'm just going to say that the best news is that we've got an electricity minister. He's going to solve all of our problems. So stop worrying I'm just you're, you're all panicking for nothing.
3: <laughs> dude he
2: might not be so bad by the way have you guys read the just energy transition
0: we are guaranteed in
2: south africa we have promised to cut our coal emissions in half by 2030 we're decommissioning plants left and right i think that if he goes he has started by saying there was a plant that was going to be decommissioned by 2035 that he now wants to contract out to be extended if he says uh stuff you to the americans um we're gonna auction off all of those plants that are uh, set to be decommissioned by 2030 if private sector companies want to pay the money to help us as south africa pay down our debts and they're going to invest in making it work again and they're going to burn coal you know i am kind of pro green but not in south africa i don't think we should be going from coal load shedding to sunflower load shedding we must get rid of load shedding first so if these guys want to sell those plants and let the private sector come in and uh, add some gas to our future That's absolutely fabulous. I'm ready to... Dude, if the ANC wants to govern this country nicely, then I will give them lots of credit for it. And and that's a potential way that he could do it.
0: All right. We'll leave it at that. Uh, Thank you, Canton. Thank you, Pumi. Thank you, Gabriel. And most especially, thank you to you for joining us on The Burning Platform today. You can find out more by subscribing to Gabriel's newsletter. Should you like to do so, find him at the Institute of Race Relations, the IRR. They're on the internet. You can find them, Anyway you type it in on Google. All right. We'll catch up next week, everybody. Have a happy day. Cheers. Bye-bye.